to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth, one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of John, chapter 11, verse 22, as we follow along with today's lesson. There is, I think, with each of us, sort of an ambivalence at times where we say, Oh, Lord, we know you can do anything, but, uh, well, Lord, don't you realize what's really happening here? You know, I mean, just, uh, <laughs> you know, it's sort of uh, the faith sort of wavers. Jesus said unto her, your brother will rise again. Now, I believe that Jesus is, is telling her I'm going to raise him. But she understands him to be talking of the resurrection of the last days, the one that uh, Daniel prophesied. So Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said unto her, I am, and this is the sixth I am of Jesus. I am the resurrection, and the life. And he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now she had said, Lord, I know that whatever you ask the Father, he will give it to you. And now he is is making this statement, radical statement indeed, I am the resurrection and the life, and he that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Lazarus had believed in Jesus. Though he was dead, yet he will live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now, Jesus in that second part, he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die, is referring to spiritual death which is the separation of a man from God, the separation of a man's consciousness from God. That's spiritual death. To live without the thought of God, without the consciousness of God, to live your life without consulting God, thinking about God. You're spiritually dead. If you live and believe in me, Jesus said, you will never die. That is, you will never be consciously separated from God. Paul the Apostle teaches that we know that when this earthly tent, the body in which we presently live, is dissolved, goes back to dust, we have a building of God, a new house. This is a tent. You never think of a tent as a permanent place to stay. A couple weeks vacation, but boy, it's nice to get home. 
We have a building of God not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So then we who are in these bodies do often groan, earnestly desiring to be freed from them. Not to be an unembodied spirit, but to be clothed upon with the body which is from heaven. For we know that as long as we are at home or living in this body, we are absent from the Lord, but we would choose rather to be absent from this body that we might be present with the Lord. Never consciously separated from God. Paul the Apostle said, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I'm in a strait between two. I've got these mixed emotions. I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And yet, I know that you still need me, and so I'm held here, uh, the desire to continue to minister to you and to strengthen you. But I would choose rather to just depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So, Jesus is saying, if you live and believe in him, you will never be separated from God's love, consciously separated from God. Do you, he said, believe this? Now, notice that she didn't really affirm her belief in his being the resurrection and the life. She affirmed her belief that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. She said unto him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, which should come into the world. A little less than what he had said. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master is come and he is calling for you. Now, John does not record the full conversation with Martha because it doesn't record that Jesus said, go get Mary. Nor does it record where Jesus said, if you can believe, you will see the glory of God. And later Jesus said to her, don't you remember I said, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. So John doesn't record that, but we know that he did say that to Martha. So we're getting an abbreviated account of of their conversation. And the Jews which were with her in the house, who were comforting her, when they saw Mary that she rose up hastily and went out, they followed her saying, she's going to the grave to weep there, or to the word weep is wail there. And then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet. Typical of Mary, the worshiper. You remember on an earlier occasion when Jesus was at their house and Martha was busy in the kitchen fixing things and getting things prepared. And where was Mary? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus, just talking to him and Martha said, Lord, send my sister in here to help me. You know, she's left me to do all the work. And she's just sitting there talking to you. And Jesus said, oh, Martha, Martha, you're cumbered with many things. But Mary has chosen the better part. Typical for Mary at the feet of Jesus. Next chapter, we'll find her anointing Jesus and wiping 
his feet with her hair, typical of Mary, the worshiper. And so she fell at the feet of Jesus. And she said unto him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. She said the same words that Martha said. I think that this reflects that they had talked about that. When Lazarus died, I'm sure that they kept talking about it, said, if the Lord had only been here. Oh, if the Lord had only have made it. He wouldn't have died if the Lord was only here. I'm sure that that was one of the subjects that they were talking about when Lazarus died. Oh, how disappointing if, if you know, he'd only been here. He wouldn't have died. And so Mary is saying the same thing as Martha. However, you really don't know what a person is saying often unless you hear the tone of voice. I think that Martha's tone of voice was sort of a rebuke, whereas Mary's is just sort of, oh, Lord, you could have done it. I I know you could have. It wasn't so much of a rebuke as just a declaration and one of just affirming her belief in his powers and in his ability. And when Jesus saw her wailing and the Jews also wailing, which came with her, He groaned in his spirit and was troubled. The Greek there is interesting. It was, he was filled with indignation. He became angry. Not at their wailing, but he became angry at the consequences and the result of sin when he saw the pain that sin brings, when he saw the grief and the sorrow that has been brought upon mankind by sin, he was troubled, he was angered, he was filled with indignation, seeing the consequences of sin, what sin does, the sorrow and the grief that sin brings. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. And there that short verse, when you were in Sunday school and they asked for a scripture memory verse, (laughs) this is one we all knew, wasn't it? Jesus wept. Now, the word here. Jesus wept is different than their weeping, which I mentioned was wailing. This just speaks of tears began to course down his cheeks. Now, he wasn't weeping as they supposed because Lazarus was dead. Because he knew that in a few moments, he was going to glorify God by raising him from the dead. But again, I believe he was weeping because he could see in the sorrow and in the bitterness 
the pain that sin does bring. In another occasion, we find Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And it was for the same cause. He could foresee what their rejection of him was going to cost them. He began to prophesy the destruction that was going to come upon Jerusalem by the Roman soldiers. He began to talk about how the children were going to be dashed in the streets and and how the Roman army was going to encircle Jerusalem and how it was going to destroy the city and how the temple would be destroyed. And as he looked over Jerusalem, he saw the desolation and the devastation that their rejection of him was going to bring. And he wept, not because they were rejecting him, but he wept because he could see the consequences of that rejection. Again, weeping over the consequences of sin, the sorrow, the pain, the suffering that it brings, we are brought by Jesus into the heart of God. You remember he said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And we see the Father weeping over the pain and the suffering that sin brings into a person's life, into the world. The effects and the consequences of sin. Oh, the pain, the suffering that sin brings. Jesus wept. The Jews' misunderstanding said, oh, look how much he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man would not have died? They're more or less saying, you know, if he had only been here, maybe he could have kept him from dying. And Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the grave. It was a cave, and there was a stone that was laying upon it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of Lazarus that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. He has been dead for four days. They didn't have any embalming. In fact, even to the present day, the Jews do bury the body the day the person dies. They, they don't have the same kind of procedures that we have here, the embalming of the body and lying in state and so forth. They just take the body out and bury it immediately. The day they die, the person is buried. And so uh, the decomposition of the body had started He's been dead for four days. And Jesus said unto her, Said I not unto thee that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? As I said, John didn't record Jesus saying that to her, but Jesus is reminding her. Don't you remember I said to you, if you would believe? Now, she had expressed earlier 
Lord, I know that whatsoever you ask of God, he will give it to you. She said, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And now, though, in practical reality, her doubts are coming forth. Lord, he's been dead for four days. We better not. And Jesus said, didn't I say to you, if you would just believe, you would see the glory of God? How true this is. If we would just believe, we could see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you hear me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that you have sent me. His own little personal sort of Conversation with the Father. Father, I know that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. It really isn't for, for my, you know, it's not for me, but for the people's sake that I say it, that they might know that you have sent me. And when he had thus spoken with the Father, it says he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come forth. Now, quite often, the uh, witch doctors and all sort of mumble incantations over the dead. Soft little incantations that you can't understand. Jesus didn't just sort of mumble, you know, in case nothing happened, you know, nothing, you know. Nobody would know, you know. But he said it with a loud voice so that they could all hear. And I can imagine, and again, notice he's addressing a man who's been dead for four days. He's talking, he's calling him by his name, commanding him, speaking to the dead. And he commands him to come forth in a loud voice that all can hear. And don't you know, for a moment, there was great tension. I'm sure that those that were wailing suddenly stopped with their mouths still wide open. What is he saying, you know? He's putting it on the line. He said, he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Now he's putting it on the line. Is that just an empty boast? Or is it reality? He's putting it all on the line right here. In a loud voice, he says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, if Lazarus doesn't come forth, then we can discount all he said. If Lazarus does come forth, then we better pay attention to what he said. What happened? And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound, hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. You remember when Jesus rose from the dead, it was different. 
the grave clothes were still lying there in place and the napkin was folded and lying separately. But here, Lazarus still bound hand and foot in the grave clothes. Probably had to sort of jump out. (laughs) And Jesus commanded, loose him. Let him go. And many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. They went and reported him. In the 16th chapter of Luke, Jesus tells the interesting story of a rich man and Lazarus and how that they both died but were separated in the grave or in hell by a gulf. Lazarus was being comforted in Abraham's bosom, and the rich man was tormented, seeking that Abraham would send Lazarus with water to touch his tongue to alleviate the torment of that heat. And Abraham said, son, remember you in your lifetime had the good things, Lazarus the evil, and now he's comforted while you are tormented. Beside that, there's this gulf between us, and it's impossible for those that are there to come over here or those that are here to go over there. And he said, I pray thee then, if Lazarus cannot come to me, send him back to the earth that he might warn my brothers lest they come to this horrible place. Abraham said, they have the law, they have the prophets. If they will not believe them, neither will they believe even though one comes back from the dead. We have, I think, a mistaken notion that if our friends could just see a miracle, then they would believe. If you are disposed not to believe, if you're determined and you've set your mind not to believe, no amount of miracles is going to convince you. It takes the Holy Spirit to convince us of sin and to plant faith in our hearts. And so here are those, there were those that did believe, but there were those that actually ran to tell the Pharisees. He's at it again to report him. So they're gathered together, the chief priests and the Pharisees, a council, and they said, What shall we do? For this man is doing many miracles. And if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, notice that they were interested in their positions. And Jesus was a threat to their positions. They were lording over the people in a religious manner. They were profiting over the people's religion. They were using it to set themselves up in an aristocracy. They lived in the finest homes in Jerusalem. They were wealthy. 
because of the way they had manipulated the religious practices so that they could profit from them. And Jesus was a threat for their positions. You remember later when Paul was preaching in Ephesus, it was Demetrius the silversmith that stirred up the crowd against Paul. He got together with the other silversmiths and said, look, fellas, these people are converting the people to Christianity and telling them that these little gods that we're making, these little silver gods that we're making and selling to the people, that they're not really gods. And so many people are believing them. Our business is being threatened. We're apt to be out of business. No one will be buying the little silver idols of Diana. And so they stirred up a riot against Paul and against those that were working with him because their trade was threatened. They had been thriving and prospering off of the religious superstitions of the people and they knew that the gospel of Jesus Christ would bring an end to that. Unfortunately, there are those who have learned since how to profit off of these things. But Jesus was a threat to their position. If we leave him alone, the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, whose name was Caiaphas, he was the high priest that same year, he said unto them, you know nothing at all. Now here they are having this big discussion, and of course this guy says, hey, you know nothing at all. Boy, that immediately just puts down everybody, doesn't it? I mean, you just... Nor do you consider it that it is expedient for us. Oh, oh, that word expediency. How many horrible things have been done in the name of expediency? Today they call it political correctness. Expediency. Don't you realize that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation perish not. Now, this is, this is politics at its worst. And politics is bad, but this is at its worst. Notice how he says it in such a politically correct way. He didn't say, don't you realize we got to kill him? Now that's what he's saying. But he, but he couches, don't you realize it's expedient that one should die that for the people, that the whole nation doesn't, you know, the national interests are greater than individual persons. It's hypocrisy. It's politics. But the interesting thing is that though this was a 
politicized kind of a speech. Because he was the high priest, there was a certain kind of anointing of God that went with the office. And this man was actually uttering a prophecy, not even realizing it. And so John tells us in verse 51, This he spake not of himself, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. Prophesying that Jesus wasn't going to die for himself, he was going to die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but that he also should gather together in one the children of God that are scattered abroad, that Jesus would die for the world. He didn't realize that that's what he was predicting, and that's exactly what was going to happen in not many days. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together to put him to death. And so Jesus, therefore, no more openly walked among the Jews, but went from there unto a country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he continued with his disciples. Now, in the previous chapter, it was in the wintertime that Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Feast of uh, dedication, December 25th, when he healed the blind man, which resulted in this uh, confrontation with the Jews in which they were going to stone him. He then left, went on down to the Jordan River until summoned by Mary and Martha because of their brother's illness. He came, raised Lazarus from the dead, but then he then returned to Ephraim to be away from the Jews because he knew that his crucifixion was to take place at the Passover as he would fulfill all of the symbolism of the Passover. And that took place in April. So these events take, are uh, taking place between the first of the year and April. The, the first couple of months, we don't have just the exact, you know, dates, but uh, he, he goes to Ephraim and there he waits until uh, six days before the Passover when he comes back to Jerusalem for the final time. Now, the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand. In other words, uh, we now are moving, uh, and how long he was there at Ephraim, we, we don't know, but not too long. He, we, how long he was at the Jordan River before Mary and Martha called, we, we don't have, we just know that this is compacted into a space of about uh, two months uh, or three months, January, February, and March. So the Jews' Passover was at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover that they might purify themselves. 
It was necessary to go through the rites of purification in order to uh, be able to participate in the temple precincts uh, on the feast days. So they would go early so that they could go through the purification rites. And then the, they sought for Jesus and they spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? Will they show up at the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where Jesus was, he should show it that they might arrest him. So word was out. If you know where he is, report him. We want to arrest him. The, they, they, the, the plot was hatched. They, they were ready to put him to death. The conspiracy had been established. And so the people were wondering, the buzz around, you suppose he'll show up? And so as we move into chapter 12, we find that Jesus does show, not in secret, <laughs> he comes riding in on a donkey uh, amidst the shouts of his disciples. So uh, our next study will take us into chapter 12. And again, we we always encourage you to read in advance what we will be studying. Let's turn to John chapter 12. John tells us here, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, which had been dead, who was raised from the dead. Six days before the Passover. Now, the next day was the triumphant entry of Jesus, which would be then Sunday, five days before the Passover, which would make Monday four days before the Passover, Tuesday three days before the Passover, Wednesday would be two days before the Passover, and of course the Passover would be Thursday. The reason why they have called Friday the day of crucifixion and they call it Good Friday is that we know it was followed by the Sabbath day. And thus, the ladies did not come to the tomb until early in the morning of the first day of the week. But John tells us that that particular Sabbath was a high Sabbath. That is, it wasn't the regular weekly Sabbath, but it was the Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For the day after the Passover began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a Sabbath day. And it was to be observed as a Sabbath day. So in reality, you would have had a double Sabbath. Jesus was crucified on Passover. He had had the Passover meal with his disciples the evening before. But with the Jews, the day began at sundown. So he had the Passover feast with his disciples. The next day would have been Passover day. And of course, it was significant, symbolic, and necessary that he be crucified on Passover, fulfilling then this Old Testament uh, feast day or holiday.
we get it also in Luke's gospel, rather Mark's gospel, uh, beginning in chapter uh, 11, where Mark tells us of the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, there in chapter 11. And then we read uh, in verse 12 of chapter 11, that is the triumphant entry on Sunday, and on the morrow, which would be Monday, uh, they returned from Bethany to Jerusalem, and Jesus saw this fig tree, and it had no fruit, so he cursed it. And then he went into the temple and cleansed the temple. And when the even was come, he went out of the city, verse 20. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the root. So uh, this would be on Tuesday. Uh, and on this day, uh, Jesus talked to them about faith. He then had a confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees and, uh, and also with the religious rulers. And uh, so the Olivet Discourse taking place, and then in chapter 14, after two days, was the Feast of the Passover. So the two days would bring you again to Thursday. So uh, not dogmatic, but it's sure a lot easier to see three days and three nights in the grave if you have Thursday as the day of crucifixion rather than Friday. If you have Friday, you have to really struggle to get him in the grave for three days and three nights before he raised from the dead. Uh, but if you have a Thursday uh, crucifixion with the double Sabbath, then it fits in quite easily. So uh, both John and Mark would seem to indicate that the Passover was on Thursday of that week. So Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus lived and his two sisters. And they made him a supper. <laughs> and guess what? Martha served. <laughs> you know, you're just true to character. Uh, we remember the earlier incident when Jesus had visited in the house with uh, Mary and Martha, how that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping, and Martha was busy uh, fixing things, getting things, serving, and she said, Lord, send Mary out here to help me, you know. Left me to do all the work while she just sits there. And you remember how Jesus sort of chided Martha, 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 you're cumbered about with many things, but Mary has chosen the better part. So it seems like a person is sort of true to his nature. There are those who just love to serve, and uh, they just come by it naturally, and then there are others who are more contemplative. They love to just sit. And worship. So we read here <laughs> that Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary, and true to form, a pound of ointment of spikenard, 
which was very costly. And she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Now, both Matthew and Mark tell us of this incident. Uh, we are told that it was in the house of a man by the name of Simon. Uh, and uh, we are told how that there was an objection from the disciples uh, about uh, the cost of this perfume. And uh, this incident is not to be confused, however, with Luke's account where there was a Pharisee named Simon who invited Jesus to supper and the woman who was a sinner came and stood at his feet weeping and uh, wiping then his feet with her hair from her tears and anointing his feet with perfume and kissing his feet profusely. Uh, and uh, Simon the Pharisee said, if this man were really a prophet, uh, he wouldn't have allowed that woman to touch him because she's a sinner. And Jesus' confrontation with Simon the Pharisee over the woman, declaring that because she was forgiven much, she loved much, and his offering the forgiveness of her sins. Uh, that was a different incident. This is again, just six days now before his crucifixion. Mary, who is perceptive, Mary, who is sensitive, has picked up on the heaviness that the Lord is going through at this time as the time of the cross has come. And she is sensitive to his spirit. And so she is desiring to do something that is special. A special demonstration of her love for him. And so she took this ointment or perfume of spikenard, which was very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of his disciples, and John identifies which of the disciples who objected. It was Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, the one that would betray him. And he said, why was not this perfume sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? The other gospels record him as saying, why this waste? A pence was an average pay for a day's labor. So 300 pence would be the salary that you would earn working 300 days. If you worked a six-day week, it's the salary that you would get almost for a year's work. And thus, as John said, it was very costly. And so Judas spoke up in objection to this. But John 
not going to gloss things for Judas. He said, this he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the bag and bear what was put therein. Judas was the treasure of the group. He kept the bag of money. But John said he was a thief and he was taking from the bag for his own personal use. He was filching out of the bag. He bare that what was put there. So he was taking from the bag. And so Jesus said, let her alone against the day of my burying has she done this. This is an anointing for my burial. For the poor always you have with you, but me you will not have always. So many of the Jews who knew he was there came not only for Jesus' sake, but they wanted to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Now, in the last chapter, we find the high priest Caiaphas in their counseling of of what they should do about Jesus and in their conspiring to put him to death, the high priest Caiaphas said, don't you realize that it is necessary that one man should die for the nation? Now it's gone from one to two. Uh, It's an amazing thing how sin can compound. It starts out with one, uh, but now it's necessary, as they see, to put two to death. Let's put Lazarus to death also because of the number of people that are being attracted uh, to the, uh, him because of the fact that he had been dead for four days. So uh, sin has that way of compounding. David, uh, sin with Bathsheba compounded into the murder of her husband. On the next day, many people that were come to the feast, that is the feast of the Passover, they were beginning to gather now for the feast of the Passover, coming early, uh, spending the days uh, in purification, going through the rite of purification so they will be able to enter into the temple and uh, join with the worship uh, in the temple precinct. So uh, many people... Uh, that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, uh, they took the branches of the palm trees and they went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear uh, not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh sitting on a donkey's colt. And these things the disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. 
So his day of presentation to the nation as their Messiah. According to the prophecy of Zechariah, he was riding on a donkey. The people began to cry a messianic psalm, Psalm 118. Hosanna, Hosanna, the Hebrew, and they were crying it in Hebrew. The translation is save now. And as you read uh, in Psalms, it is translated there, save now, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So this uh, psalm uh, that uh, they were uh, crying out is a prophetic psalm of the Messiah. It begins, the prophetic part begins with, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day that God has established for the presentation of the Messiah, the promised Messiah to the nation. And then that psalm goes on to talk about the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief stone of the corner. This is the work of the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then it goes on to bind the sacrifice unto the altar. So it is a psalm that is speaking of Jesus being presented to the nation as the Messiah, tied together with Zechariah, coming in on a donkey, and tied together, of course, with the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel, the angel said to Daniel, from the time that the commandment goes forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah, the Prince, will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, or 483 years. And so it is all tied together. The prophecies of the Old Testament on this day, this day of the triumphant entry of Jesus, as the people are waving palm branches and crying out, uh, blessed Hosanna, or save now, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Uh, you remember that the Pharisees said to Jesus, rebuke your disciples, this is blasphemy. And Jesus said, I tell you that if they at this moment would hold their peace, the very stones would cry out. Luke tells us how that Jesus, looking over the city, wept. And he said, if you'd only known the things that belong to thy peace, at least in this thy day, but they are hid from your eyes. And he spoke then of the desolation that was going to come. So... This is John's account of the triumphant entry. It is an abbreviated account in comparison to the other Gospels. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the Gospel of John in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the triumphal entry. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order John 11 through 12 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. 
You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. So we stand. Once in a while, when I read the newspapers, And I see the tragedy that sin has brought into the world. I see the grief and the pain and the suffering. I understand a little bit the heart of Jesus, who wept over the pain that sin brings. And I'm sure that you also must feel that way sometimes when you read of what's happened and what is happening. The pain, the sorrow that sin brings. But Jesus came that he might cancel out the results of sin. And in your life, as you surrender your life to him, he can cancel out the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that sin has brought. And he can give you, as the prophet said he would, beauty for ashes and the cup of joy for mourning. Oh, how I love him. How I appreciate his love for me. May you go in the love of Jesus. May you be enriched in the love of Jesus. May you become very conscious and aware of his love, of his presence. With you this week, sustaining you, helping you, guiding you, keeping you steadfast in his love. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. The Word for Today is pleased to present a flash drive of audio Bible studies by Kay Smith titled, A Collection of Cherished Messages. Just listen to what others are saying. Kay Smith changed my life. Her teachings encouraged me to want more of Jesus. And through her counsel and mentoring, I fell in love with Him in a deeper way. When I first heard Kay, I was driving in my car. I was so moved that it brought me to tears because I needed to repent. That moment impacted my life to be a better mom and who
who I am today. Renew your strength, please. I beg, I beseech, I entreat, and if there's any other word, I do that too. Get in His Word. Make it more than your necessary food every day. Kay Smith has a special place in her heart to teach and encourage women to live for Jesus. To order this flash drive with over 90 audio messages by Kay Smith, visit thewordfortoday.org or call 800-272-9673.